Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members at Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Matt S. at MKMK4466809, Holly W. and Brent S. We've got a returning guest on the show today. Jeff Clenda has joined us. Jeff is Chairman, President, and CEO of UR Energy, a U.S. ISR-focused uranium producer with its Lost Creek ISR mine in Wyoming, United States. The company is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol URG, also on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol URE. Mr. Klenda, thanks for coming back to talk to us. How are things with you? Going great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Well, Jeff, tell the audience where you're talking to us from and how are things going on your end? Well, I'm in lovely Denver, Colorado, actually out in Golden, the home of Coors Beer, and uh, uh, things are going great. It's an exciting time in the uranium space right now, and uh, I, I must say, um, it, when I say that, I, I'm primarily referring to politically. Uh, I, the Biden administration has proven to be, at least for me anyway, an unexpected ally to our industry. and. Uh, Consequently, uh, there's been a lot of uh, interest, and uh, it's been an exciting time over the last three, four months, and I have a feeling that uh, throughout this administration, uh, very good things are coming our way. Well, we'll see how things continue to play out here, and yeah, things look pretty good overall here. It's going to be an interesting few years ahead of us, I can tell you that. Absolutely. Well, Jeff, it's been about a year and a half since we last had you on the program. Lots of things have happened. Um, we can forget about some of those for now, but I'd like to get your positions on a few key actions that have happened recently in the sector. First off, most recent, Sprott is renovating the UPC vehicle and it appears to be getting aggressive. What are your thoughts on uh, Sprott taking this over and uh, this event? Well, you know, I'm not, um, I don't want to be coy, but I don't, I, I'm not sure I should be too candid with you. I, I, overall, I like to think it's a good thing because UPC has been very passive. Uh, they haven't really done much. They acquire uh, physical product, they sit on it, and sometimes they trade. They trade at a at a positive price uh, uh, to NAV, and other times they trade at a negative. So they really haven't uh, been much of an impact in the space, one way or another. Obviously, Sprott brings a whole new dimension. Sprott's a very active player on very on virtually every level in natural resources so uh you know i'm not sure what their overall plans are for upc uh now with sprott having access to a, a significant inventory quite candidly it depends on how they use it uh, i would hope that it's going to be a very positive development for the space and that uh, upc would uh would be active and well first and foremost it needs to be profitable for its shareholders i think they intend to bring greater profitability, probably through greater trading. Uh, whether or not that's a positive or negative for me as a uranium miner, though, too early to tell. I haven't had a chance to speak to anybody at Sprout about that yet. Just saw the news uh, back yesterday afternoon. 
Yeah, it's interesting. And if they get New York listed here and uh, approach it like a gold ETF, for lack of better examples here, buy and sell based on investor demand, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Physical purchases of uranium by junior listed companies. We've seen this uh, in the U.S. and other places as well, but in the U.S. specifically, Jeff, to you, we've seen UEC, Uranium Royalty, um, Encore Energy come out and buy some material. Notwithstanding what's happened with Yellow Cake, let's leave them separately. But uh, what is your mm -hmm. thoughts on the U.S. listed juniors and other juniors in the space coming out and buying uranium? And will UR Energy take such an action? First of all, let me say that I do think that it is a positive development. And I think that you can look at it in, in three ways. At least this is the way I am. And I think that, first of all, uh, by buying um, the on, in the spot market, let's face it, there's a, uh, some of these guys are a long way away from production. So they're buying it either strategically, uh, and there's a couple of reasons why they would do that, or they're buying it to, for lack of a better term, they're buying legitimacy because now, even though they're a long way away from production, they can say, hey, look, I've got a stockpile of uranium, so therefore I am a real player. But one of the second issue that I would say that it, it gives them, and I, and I think it is a positive, is that it serves as collateral. Uh, if these guys now are called upon, let's say that the utilities come into the marketplace in the second half of the year, contracts are available. Well, now they've got um, a, a marketable asset that can serve as collateral with a first tier lender and so that they can get the lending uh, at favorable, un, under favorable terms that they need. And the third thing that I think is a positive is that should they enter into contracts with utilities, as long as there's not a stipulation that it be domestically U.S. produced material, they would have the first couple of years of deliveries now in-house. And so they would have those available to deliver. So I think you, in my view anyway, I look at it from those three criteria. Now, as to whether or not your energy would be in the marketplace buying, uh, frankly, if our currency was expensive enough and, and we had the opportunity to go into the market and do it at an, an acceptable level of dilution and buy it at a price that would be comparable or less than what I could produce it for myself, then yes, I would go into the market. But the way we're viewing it right now is that we're in a position which I consider to be the most advantageous position in the marketplace where Lost Creek is on care and maintenance. Uh, all uh, I can ramp Lost Creek to a million pounds per year run rate, and I can do that in a six-month period of time. And for a cost of about $15 million, that's faster than anyone in the industry can do that. That's the lowest cost that anybody in the industry can do that. And I can do that without imposing significant dilution on my shareholders. So would I go out there and dilute my shareholders now taking cash to buy inventory, or would I simply ramp up production and know that I have uh, a million pounds per year run rates coming out of the plant in a six-month period of time. For me, it's a different equation than it is for most of the other guys. I don't need to buy legitimacy. We've been producing for the last eight years, and we're good to go. Anytime there's a green light, we're ready to step on the gas. So we're in a little different position than everybody else, but I'm not opposed to buying under the right circumstances. Jeff, under that scenario there, you know, six months, 15 million. It sounds like to me that probably wouldn't be interested in buying physical pounds off the marketplace unless it was significantly cheaper. Am I right? Well, and, and keep something else in mind. There's a reason why I say that, and that is that eventually we're going to probably get on the topic of the strategic uranium reserve. 
And the uranium reserve does call for domestically produced pounds. So for me, uh, it's advantageous. If I'm incentivized to, to deliver my own production and am able to get into production that quickly, uh, I, I want to deliver U.S. pounds and I want to have a higher, I want to have as many U.S. produced pounds as possible because if you're going to deliver them to the uh, federal government, uh, they fall under the category of what are called unobligated pounds. And so their the federal government is free to use them not only to backstop the utilities for commercial purposes, but they can also then use them for military needs or to um, fuel the nuclear navy, whatever the case might be. So uh, for us, uh, if we have contracts and they're at the right prices, we are incentivized to produce our own material. Yeah, that's a good point. Buy American, especially with this uranium reserve, and I want to come back to that in a moment. Mixed feelings here. We've written about this uh, just most recently. You know, we're of the opinion that there is better things to do with capital for certain companies. It doesn't apply to everybody, but uh, we are of the belief that proper M&A for meaningful mineable pounds makes sense. And then also uh, value through the drill bit. And then you provide an example with your energy where you can essentially spend 15 million per what you guys have guided and get Lost Creek back up and going in six months where some of these companies are barely receiving their deliveries in six months. That's a good point. And I think that people need to pay attention to that. There's not a one size fits all to this. And think about where that leaves us. I mean, $15 million, what does that really represent at $30 a pound? I can go out there and I can buy 500,000 pounds, which I, I have 300,000 pounds of U.S. produced inventory that I'm sitting on now. I can either go out there and buy an additional 500,000 pounds, which in the scheme of things is really not that significant, or I can spend an equivalent amount of money, ramp to a million pounds a year, and know that I can sustain it for the next 10 plus years. So, like I said, for me, a little different equation. Give us an update on the U.S. uranium reserve procurement, because you're pretty in tune with what's happening there in the U.S. Mark Chalmers, a few of the U.S. folks are probably paying attention pretty well here. But do you see any solicitations coming out during the rest of the year? Well, this has been a, a bit of a source of frustration. And if you've been talking to Mark and some of the other guys, I, I talk to uh, the, the guys at Energy Fuels frequently. They're good guys, uh, solid company, and, and we have nothing but respect for them. But we've been a little bit frustrated. Quite, you know, look, I'm going to be honest with you on that. The, when the uh, omnibus budget was put in place and signed on December 22nd, there was supposed to be a, an outline or some sort of a format for the strategic reserve presented to the appropriators within 30 days after that. Well, clearly that didn't happen. Here we are four months later. We still don't have it. That's very frustrating. There is going to be a request for information along with a NEPA review. Now, we are, we've been speaking to the Department of Energy. We want those things to occur simultaneously. But as to whether or not there will be solicitations or requests for proposals coming to the domestic producers, either the two of us that remain or the other ones that portend to be uranium producers in the United States, I think that you have to look at this in the context that this is actually a 2021 appropriation. So like most other government appropriations, it's either use it or lose it. I mean, if you're the Department of Energy and, and you receive uh, you know $10 billion and over the course of the year, you don't spend it, um, 
the way the appropriators tend to look at it is, well, wait a minute, you didn't spend the ten million you got or ten billion you got. Why should I give you a why should I give you an increase in your budget for next year? So uh they will, in my view, figure out a way to get everything set up. They're waiting for the political appointees. The problem is is that we don't have a head of nuclear energy, that division of the Department of Energy in place yet. And the Biden administra administration has spent the first hundred days, if you will, of its administration issuing executive orders, impeaching a president that was already out of office, and then putting in place a stimulus package and now flogging an infrastructure bill. And we don't know enough detail about that to know whether or not that's going to have a lot built in for nuclear. So uh, candidly, there's a lot of uncertainty. We, we're still in a bit of a wait and see mode, although we are canvassing uh, both sides of the aisle in terms of members of Congress. We are speaking to the Department of Energy, and it's my opinion that, yes, uh, because they are a government agency and the money has already been appropriated for use in this year, it will be spent this year. And that should, by the way, favor those of us that have inventories, because when you think about it, the other guys that would produce and deliver into that uranium reserve, they have no material to deliver, and they would have to ramp up. And in many cases, they would have to build out infrastructure. That's not going to happen before the end of 2021. So there's only a couple of us that are actually really in advantageous positions to be able to deliver into the strategic reserve. Yeah, the administration change, you know, I can see why that's delayed everything. And the people that were in there that got this going have departed. And there was a lot of uh, rats going away from the sinking ship that left, obviously, that didn't have jobs once uh, the administration changed. What's the story with the NEPA review? Because most likely this is going to be existing facilities because the procurement size is not going to be big enough to justify all this CapEx, most likely. So What's up with That's the right. NEPA review on an existing facility providing filling a contract? I don't get that. No, that you know what, and that's a great question too, Andrew, and, I, and I'll tell you why, because it's something where um, this one is a source of frustration for us, because if you take a look at what a NEPA, the NEPA review is something that is required for appropriations of a fiscal material like this that has to be produced and that may have environmental consequences. Okay, that's fine, understood. But what we're simply, the case we're making to the Department of Energy is, look, each and every one of the players who would be a provider of material under the uranium reserve are somebody that has already gone through a NEPA reserve on any given project. So this has already been done. And that's why what our position with the Department of Energy is, look, guys, you don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We've all gone through NEPA reviews. These simply accept the NEPA reviews that we have, gather them together, review them in the context now of the strategic uranium reserve, check that box because it's already been done. There's no, there's no reason to complicate this, turn it into um, a bigger issue than it needs to be. The fact is the NEPA reviews have already been completed for the most part, and there's no reason why those shouldn't be acceptable to meet the requirements of the appropriators. So that's why we're saying to them, look guys, when you're requesting information from all of these quote unquote stakeholders, do that simultaneously with simply reviewing our existing NEPA actions that have already been taken. And you'll, we can do this simultaneously 
This doesn't need to take six months. It can take 60 days, and we've got it all done. So we're we're hopeful that um, that they'll opt for the uh, the most direct route to satisfying their obligations, and that would be simply accepting the NEPA reviews that are already in place. That would be the sensible thing to do. Well, but we're talking government, so you know. <laughs> Jeff, when Lockheed takes a defense contract to produce a bunch of materials at their facilities, why don't they need to review that? Shit, why don't we have a NEPA review to have a barbecue outside in our backyard for crying out loud? <laughs> well, they, be careful what you wish for. I mean, come on. I mean, this could be a rough summer. NEPA review to restart their chicken farms post-COVID. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, to keep this in mind, though, I mean, we function in, on, and a lot of us function in the state of Wyoming. We are an agreement state, much different than working on the federal level. So that has actually been just a, a godsend. That's been wonderful. So uh, we're yeah. very, we too, we're very fortunate that we have that we're in an agreement state, and others are as well for their primary production facilities. So, um, in fact, if you take a look at, the, at every one of the guys that would be producers, almost every one of them. They're all functioning out of agreement states, so that's very much positive. Yeah, certainly, and Wyoming's a fine state. There's no doubt about that. Well, yeah. give us an update here on the capital structure. It's been a while since we talked. Uh, cash debt position here, shares outstanding, and the major shareholders on the roster. Yeah, well, you know, right now, uh, our company, we feel that we're in very strong position. We have about $18 million in cash, and then in addition to that, we have uh, approximately another nine million in inventory, all Lost Creek produced material. We have approximately 188 million shares issued and outstanding uh, because of the financing that we completed in uh, the first week of uh, February. But that's put us in a very, very strong position. So uh, we feel very good about that. Uh, uh, our largest shareholders, in fact, I told you before we came on that I just got back from my first official business trip in 16 months and it was where you might have expected down in Miami it seems as though about half of New York has now moved to Miami so uh, there's a lot of action going on down there a lot of the funds are down there and many of them had second homes down there anyway but uh, uh, it was good to get out and see people so um, we were out to be able to see some of our largest shareholders and in that town there's a group of funds that probably comprise about 23% of my shareholders. Uh, Carrollton Capital is really kind of the leader of that group and, and they have a large position. Our largest individual um, shareholder is CQS out of London uh, institutionally. And then as far as individual shareholders, as you may recall, I am the largest individual shareholder in my company and not because I issued myself stock at a half a penny when we formed the company 17 years ago. Uh, I have the largest position in the company because I've actually written checks for three and a half million dollars. So I'm a big believer in eating my own cooking. So not only one of the things that I would emphasize is that after Fukushima occurred on March of 2011, people don't seem to recall that for a year after that, spot price stayed stubbornly up above $55 a pound in between $55 and $60 a pound. We didn't sit on our hands. We put contracts in place all the way through to the end of the decade, and some of them as high as $66, $67 a pound. So we just delivered into our last contracts in March of last year. So now we've officially run out of contracts. But the thing that's been great is over the last eight years, we've had consistent cash flows. 
we've positively cash flowed four out of the last five years. And and the, the end result of that is that we've got inventories to show for it. We've had stability financially, and we have not had to blow up our cap structure. Our shareholders have experienced the least dilution of any other of my peer companies in the uranium space. So uh, overall, I would guess I would summarize that, summarize that by saying I wouldn't trace places with anyone. Jeff, I appreciate you pointing those items out. And then also writing the checks, I think that's important. I appreciate you pointing out the half penny where some of these people do that often, certainly folks from Vancouver. You know, oftentimes these companies, they, you know, you'll, you'll hear somebody say, oh, they own 15% of the company, therefore their interests are better aligned with the shareholders. Well, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Uh, if, if they went out there and they and they bought in one of the financings or private placements that they've been that they put out in the marketplace as I have on many occasions, then yeah, their interests are aligned with the shareholders because they've written big checks right along with the shareholders. If they issued themselves in, in the formational stages, quarter penny a share uh, stock, and so now they have a large uh, position by virtue of that, uh, their interests are not so much aligned. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that one out, but you do have to dig through some filings, but absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so Lost Creek, you received yeah. a license amendment in March for Wellfield expansion and increased plant production levels to 2.2 million pounds annually, including some tolling. Talk about that, and what are you looking at with the tolling component? Well, indeed we did, and, and we've always had that. Remember that um, Lost Creek uh, has a total capacity of uh, 2 million pounds a year, which now by virtue of the permit expansion that you mentioned is now 2.2 million pounds per year. So we have increased that. We've increased the size of the footprint so that we can now bring in additional mine units that we had already laid out. And we now added the KM amendment, which gives us the ability to do work in the next lower stratigraphic horizon. So those are all important things that came out of that licensing amendment. But it puts us in a position immediately where we can ramp now uh, Lost Creek to one and a quarter million pounds a year, call it, and do that on an annual basis, and then still take in loaded resins from outside sources, whether that be from our Shirley Basin project or from somebody else's project, where we want to charge them for toll milling. So we have a total capacity now there of, of 2 million pounds, and you will soon see that we will have um, a similar announcement come out on uh, Shirley Basin. And this is, by the way, not material undisclosed information. The filings are all public. Everybody knows exactly what we're uh, applying for there. And we have applied for, we want to build a satellite plant there, but we've applied for a full plant there. And so when we get the final final, and that could be any time now, uh, could be very soon. And we've said that in public filings, by the way. So we would effectively double our uh, production capacity. And this is something that is notable. Uh, it gives us a much larger footprint as a company. And so I think it's important that people understand that even though times have been very, very difficult over the course of the last several years, we're not sitting idle. Uh, we're making sure that everything has been, all the circuits are clean and everything's working out. We're still flowing the plant. We're still taking what minimal production that will provide. And as you just noted with the licensing amendment, 
We're expanding our footprint. We're giving ourselves the ability to go to the next stratigraphic horizon. We're making things happen while we're waiting for you know, fortunes to change. And I think that that time is at hand because what we're seeing are, I believe, very, very definite uh, structural changes from a supply-demand standpoint in our industry. Jeff, talk just a little bit more about Shirley Basin for a second. You know, it is a key pipeline project for the company. Assuming the uranium price is good, how soon do you see this slotting in behind Lost Creek steady-state production? Well, actually, it would come in behind it. And as I'd already mentioned, we can be up and running in, uh, to a million pounds a year, a million and a quarter, and six months, and that'll cost of $15 million. That's shortest and lowest cost in the industry. Then you take a look at Sugarwood Basin. Well, Sugarwood Basin, first thing to understand about Sugarwood Basin is that it was a former producer with an NRC license. What we have simply been doing is that we have been converting it from conventional um, production, a license for conventional production, to a license for institute recovery. And we've taken our time about it because there hasn't been any reason to hurry, so we've just kind of just kind of pushed it along. But what, now we're, we're on the verge of having the final final, and it's coming at a time when we think things are turning around. Shirley Basin uh, is a former producer. In fact, it is, we believe, the birthplace of in-situ recovery there. Uh, the French group Arriva, we bought it from them. Now they are Arana, so they go by a different name. But we believe that the very first in-situ recovery was, there by, was done there by some very brilliant uh, engineers that worked for the French company at that time. And when it comes online, it is the property that will top us up to 2 million pounds per year. Now, if we just build a satellite, we think that it'll cost us right at about 25 million. And we've modeled this uh, to the point where you can, you can almost overdo something. So we, we are very confident that we can do it at $25 million or less. That would top us up to 2 million pounds per year. And we can have Shirley Basin up and running to half million to three quarter million pounds per year and do that in as little as 15 months but no more than 18 months so what i guess i am saying is that if you want to put a benchmark in place of saying okay if you were to ask each one of myself and my peers what's it going to take you to get to two million pounds per year let's say that's the benchmark everybody wants to get to i know what it's going to take me because i've been producing for the last eight years it's going to cost me about 40 million dollars no more than a year and a half. I can ramp to two million pounds per year and I can sustain that for the next 10 years. Because one of the things that's an important issue is that guys will say, well, in the next two years, I can ramp to four million pounds a year. First of all, no, you can't. But let's assume that you could. Getting there, getting to a level of production is one thing. Sustaining it for an extended period of time to be able to deliver into long-term contracts that's quite another. And so I think that's something that's very important to remember is just just getting there isn't good enough. Getting there and sustaining it is what's important. And what are your costs going to be once you get there? How long is it going to take for that capital cost recovery? And remember, now you're producing. Now you've got to explore and develop to replace those pounds that you're producing. And let's not forget, you've got to build in an acceptable rate of return for your shareholders. These are things that are critical to ramping uh, a production site that are so often not asked by the investment community. I like to have those things out front and center. We know who we are. 
to I like to put uh, everyone else on the hot seat and make them answer those same questions. I, I know that's a bit devious, but uh, so my apologies. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> I want to switch gears here, Jeff, for a moment and just talk about underfeeding here. Prior yeah. years, underfeeding was a large contributor to secondary supply. What is your position yeah. on underfeeding during a bull price cycle? And how much supply from underfeeding do you see coming this year? And will that number from underfeeding continue to decrease in the years ahead of us? This is something, you know, it's interesting because we work with Newcorn, and that's Jim Cornell. And I, I consider Jim Cornell to be the, he's the top gun in the industry. I don't think there's anybody that's got more years than he does uh, operating at a higher level and has uh, greater contacts throughout the industry, top to bottom, no matter what area of uh, the fuel cycle you're talking about. I talked to Jim about this very thing, and, and in fact, uh, his contention is that enrichment prices are increasing, and it's anticipated that that trend will continue. So this will make underfeeding less financially attractive, and it will result in a significant decrease in this uh, spot market supply source. Uh, the past underfeeding, as you've noted, has been responsible for anywhere from 22 to 24 million pounds per year, U308 equivalent. And that's been a, a significant source of essentially free material that doesn't have to be mined. So um, that's had an impact on our market. But as that trend, as that higher pricing in enrichment is anticipated to continue, now you're selling it into the market. As the higher prices rise, you're selling the enrichment into the market as it comes out of the cascades. And so you're less likely to leave it in there so that that underfeeding grows. It's anticipated that underfeeding will drop down to 10 million pounds U308 equivalent or below. And uh, whether or not we'll get to that point this year, that I'm not sure. I have spoken to, I, as I mentioned, I've spoken to Jim Cornell about it. And I've also spoken to a couple of the traders about it. And many of them feel that we'll get close to that 10 million uh, pound U308 equivalent of underfeeding this um, or close to it this year, but that we will get below that in subsequent years, uh, given current pricing and the trend in enrichment. Uh, term contracting. Is there any chatter out there that you've heard on term contracting and from your contacts has there been any change of behavior with regards to utility thoughts on term contracting here? Anything you'd like to mention on that front? Well, let me give you kind of my overview on that and, and take it for, you know, what, it's, what you will, what it's worth. Um, first of all, I think that uh, one of the things that should be mentioned is that we are now in our third consecutive year of structural deficit. Uh, in 2019, the world consumed 187 million pounds of uranium. Primary production was 139 million. 58 million pounds structural deficit that has to be met by secondary supply. Last year, in fact, this was just written up last week, UX came out with what they said were their kind of their final, final numbers that consumption was right at about 180 and, um, and that uh, 108, I think it was 185, excuse me and that total primary production came in at 125. So well, how accurate they are, I'm not sure, but let's just say that that structural deficit is between 55 and 60 million pounds. We know that this year, uh, because Cameco continues to be shut down at both 
Smith, uh, Smith Ranch, uh, at MacArthur River and Cigar Lake. And the Cossacks have had some curtailment and that they expect their 20% reduction to continue, despite the fact that they'll produce upwards of about 58 million pounds this year. We are now in our third year of structural deficit. This is projected to continue. So as to contracting, my projection coming into the year was that I would see approximately, I thought I'd see a half a dozen RFPs coming out of the utilities. We ended up seeing five. Now, that sounds really good, but let me, I don't want to distort the perception on that. Uh, only one of those was what I consider to be of adequate uh, volume and quantity that I think that it is impactful in the market. So you had five that we've seen so far, only one of them of significant quantity. Uh, so far in the second quarter, we've had one that's come across. We don't generally see the European RFPs, but we see all of the domestic RFPs or most of the domestic RFPs unless they're asking for enrichment or US-6, which obviously we are not going to provide. So I think the thing that we're seeing and, and what we now understand is that typically the utilities keep somewhere around 2.8 to 3 years of inventory. We know that that inventory is dwindling now. It's dropping down much closer to the two-year mark. And so while they have been engaging in off-market purchases on, on the spot market and out a couple of years on the forward curve, um, there, so there has been contracting that's taking place that's a bit under the radar that's not being reported. The reality is, is that they're getting awfully thin because those aggregate numbers have to be reported to the Department of Energy. And when the Department of Energy comes out and says, look, you guys are getting down to around two years now, my personal feeling is, is that that will now, we will now see the utilities in the market. And I believe that in the second half of this year is when we're really going to see the utilities come in and come in for quantity. And let me make one other point here that I think is something that is underappreciated. And that is that the Biden administration has very ambitious, you know, carbon limit goals that require all the existing nuclear plants to remain in operation. You've heard John Kerry say this. You've heard Bill Gates get on, you know, 60 Minutes and he's writing off eds in Politico. He's getting on CNBC. The guy's really banging the drum. But in order for them to do this, we have to keep the existing plants operating. If they are serious about that, and indeed we just saw that New Jersey said, no, look, we're going to support these guys. They've got to stay in operation. It means that there's going to be greater operational predictability out of the utilities, which means that they're now able to enter into more long-term contracts as opposed to relying so heavily on the spot market, which is, and the intermediate market, which is what they've been doing for the last several years. So, I think that's something that's important, and that's why I say that, first of all, the, the Biden administration has been an unexpected ally, and I'm, I'm very happy to see that they have said it, and they and they state it repeatedly, we've got to keep the existing fleet in operation. Look, Andrew, we all saw what happened in Texas. Um, there would have been hundreds of more people dead and frozen to death in Texas were it not for nuclear not only did wind and solar fail, they failed spectacularly. So I think that as long as the utilities know that they can count on their facilities being kept open, it's going to give them greater certainty and it will result in more long-term contracts. And again, I expect that in the second half of this year.
very good points on the reduction of uncertainties at the utility level as far as some of the policies are coming out. That's good to point out, Jeff. And I think that the final levels of uncertainty in this market will be that some people call it security of supply. Certainty of supply is a good term, but uh, I think that's all going to flow back down to the mine side. That is going to be the big question. Where does this material come from and who does it come from? And uh, when can it get there? Let me make one more point with respect to that that I think your your listeners will appreciate, and that is that, look, this is turned into whether we, you know, you can you can debate the merits of it and, and whether or not it makes a lot of sense, but the fact is is that the Russians uh, are right now providing a tremendous amount of our material. I mean, they're increasingly viewed as a national threat. The U.S. utilities are not. They're not blind to that. They recognize that the um, incredible dependence that they have on Russia right now, and it's not just the 20% that they're getting under the Russian suspension agreement. Remember that the Russians own half of the production or nearly half of the production coming out of Kazakhstan. Well, all of this needs to be railed up to uh, through Russia, and it all goes out of the port of St. Petersburg. So we have now gotten ourselves into a position where we are now nearly 50% reliant on the Russians for our nuclear fuel. We're 100% dependent on foreign sources. That's just a fact of life. We have such negligible production coming out of the United States. The Department of Energy does not even come out with those quarterly figures anymore. So I think that the utilities, look, these these guys, they're smart guys. You don't get to be an upper-level executive that's responsible for the buying that men and a fuel that millions of people depend on for their lives, uh, without being somebody who's who's pretty smart. And they they recognize that they cannot be as dependent. They cannot continue being as dependent as they are on um, supply that's coming through St. Petersburg, and particularly when you've got hotspots around the world flashing up. And most recently in Ukraine, we've all seen what's developing there. Uh, I think that I think you, the Russians responded with such force. I'm going to say, go out on a limb here and say nothing's going to come of that. I don't think that that's going to uh, deteriorate into a hot war. But I do think that the utilities are mindful of this, and I think that they're going to be less inclined to remain as dependent as they have been over the last few years. And so, uh, and of course, this was something that was a, a big issue for us when we brought Section 232. In January of 2018, ourselves and energy fuels was this over reliance on Russia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. And um, while we failed on 232, I would make this point that what came out of that was the nuclear fuel working group. And it's interesting because this is one of the points that I would make. I'm right now I'm looking at the the report, the Restoring America's Competitive Nuclear Energy Advantage report. They came out with a summary of measures that that report resulted in. There were 18 in total. I've highlighted the ones that I believe are part now of the Biden administration's green agenda. Do you know that 10 of the 18 measures that were that were that came directly out of the nuclear fuel working group are now tenets of the Biden administration's green energy mandate? So while we may have failed on 232. It brought us the working group, and that brought us the core of the clean energy agenda of this administration. So 
I would suggest to you that while 232 may have been a failure, the end result is not known yet, and I believe that's going to be a success. Well, Jeff, maybe they're starting to wake up because they've been asleep at the wheel for a number of years, as we've said, and been critical of them from a policy standpoint. And it seems like that there was maybe possibly you can blame it unintended consequences. But I think the other component on the Russian side is that this was essentially by design from them. And, we got, that, yeah. and we got sucked into it. And look at the result. This is a terrible do you believe for a moment that it's a coincidence or an accident that we have become this dependent on the Russians? I mean, look at rare earths. We're 80% reliant on the Chinese. We get in a few tiffs with them, and they've already made the threats that if we push too hard, they'll cut off the supply of rare earths. We can't let uranium fall into that category, and yet that is precisely what we've done. Uh, do you think for a moment that in Iran, who's now enriching to 60%, or Syria, where we're already bombing targets. Many of those Russian installations that were doing it in conjunction with the Israelis. And do you really think that if we get into a hot war with the Russians, that we aren't going to find ourselves in a position where at some point Vladimir Putin really engages in the same form of blackmail that he has with Eastern and Western Europe? where he just cuts off the supply of natural gas and oil. Uh, he can do that with nuclear fuel. And if he were to do that, if there's any disruption in that material that's coming into the United States, our U.S. utilities would literally, literally be in crisis overnight. You'd wake up the next day, spot wouldn't be at $30. It would be at $60 and rising. Our stock wouldn't be at $1.10 or $1.20. It would be at $3 and rising. And this is the chance that we're taking, and this is the this is the game of well, for lack of a better term, this is the game of Russian roulette that the utilities have been playing, and I think it's a dangerous game. Jeff, they've been brilliant with their strategy, and sadly, the U.S. has been complacent in a lot of places, fat, dumb, and happy. So that's a result. That is exactly what's <laughs> happened here, and I know people don't like that, but that is what's happened. Yeah, you, you know, they've got their, their primary negotiator, Lavrov, and, and then, of course, you've got the, the chess master, Putin, and, and watching them beat up on our senior trade officials for the last 20 years has been an embarrassment. Uh, and I don't think any of this is an accident. I think that they have orchestrated this vulnerability by the United States. And we've said this for years. We cannot lose our seat at the nuclear table. I mean, look, we have been the primary deterrent to nuclear proliferation since the beginning of the atomic age, back in the 1940s, and yet we have no primary production of uranium coming out of North America right now for the first time since the 40s. Our only converter is shut down and they're not coming back online until 2023, and we don't produce any, uh, we don't enrich for our own purposes, we all enrich for the Russians. So, we've really put ourselves in a compromised position here. And so now you ask yourself, okay, the, the Russians are right now building 24 reactors in 12 countries. The Chinese are going to have their first demonstration uh, small modular reactor. They were supposed to have it before the end of the year, but they're certainly going to have it this year. Who's really leading the nuclear sector at this point? It'd be very difficult to say we are now. We're the largest consumer. We're the biggest player. But have, you, know, you have to ask yourself the question, have we already ceded that technological supremacy or primacy in nuclear energy? And if we let the fuel cycle die in the United States, 
the the very harsh and very significant result of that may be the loss of our seat at the nuclear table. And we can't let that happen because we have been the primary deterrent to nuclear proliferation. This is a role that's too important to not only our country, but to the West and to the world. And so this is something we, we can't fail at this. Jeff, to regain it, it's a 10 trillion plus endeavor. And people think that number's high, it's not. That is what is needed because right now, there is no seat at the table in regards to proliferation type issues. If the U.S. doesn't make the deal on equal to or better terms than the Russian or the Chinese, then guess what? The client goes to the Russians and the Chinese because they offer what the client wants. It's simple. Don't get hung up on, well, we can't let you have this. You can't even say that. You know what the Russians and the Chinese will do? Sure, we'll give you that, absolutely, to get the deal. And so that's well, where the U.S. needs to turn around and figure out what their position is here. And, and keep this in mind, when, when, when the Russians go out and, they, and they, I mean, they go to a country like Bangladesh, for goodness sake, and they're building out a nuclear reactor there and saying, hey, look, we're going to design it for you. We're going to build it. We're going to fuel it, and we'll decommission it and, and part the whole thing out and, and, and reclaim the whole thing when it's done 80 or 100 years from now. But what that does is that establishes a 100-year situation where they have that codependency where they are now dependent on the Russians for a significant amount of their clean energy. And the more they go out there and they cut deals with all of these African nations, these, these are nations that now have strong ties to the Russian and Chinese bloc and not with the West, which they would have had previously. So you're right. We're out there throwing around trillions of dollars in the form of infrastructure or stimulus or whatever you want to call it. But for a few tens of, of billions of dollars, we can completely and for decades to come restore the fuel cycle here in the United States. Remember, we used to be the largest producer of uranium on the planet. And while we may never regain that position again, we can certainly get to a point where we're virtually self-reliant if we only have the political will to do so. Yeah, correct. And the turnkey package is brilliant. Own nothing, control everything style is brilliant. Uh, command and conquer. If, you know, the other point too, if you want to go after the climate change issue, you want to get on clean, real dense, clean energy, which is nuclear. That bill, to be able to retake the nuclear table from a global competitive standpoint, have the U.S. lead those turnkey projects abroad, that literally is a 10 trillion plus endeavor and that is what is needed and there's no more flipping pennies over here flipping pennies to the sectors flipping pennies to the industry it's now time to get serious or lose your position that's my position on that and then the other point back to texas just imagine if the grid in texas was predominantly nuclear and on top of that what about district heating you solve two problems right there and so yeah, it's clear that we got a good slap in the face with the Texas example of what should be done. And I hope people actually take that lesson learned and actually apply it to a better application in the future. We can continue to talk, but I want to move on for the sake of time, your time specifically. I want to talk just briefly about mergers and acquisitions, Jeff. Do you have any thoughts mm -hmm. on U.S. consolidation and what is your position with regards to early stage M&A? Well, I think, first of all, right now, uh, keep this in mind. Let's let's put the whole thing in perspective. In 2007, 
there were 585 companies that were supposed to be uranium companies. Uh, and that was actually, that number came out of a survey that was done for Cameco uh, by an independent contractor. I know the guy who did the survey. Um, he's a friend of the company. We've known him for years. And so we know there were 585 names. Today, there are less than 60. And the only reason that there's 60 is because more than half of those are really microcap explorers out of Australia or Canada. So what you have left is you only have probably a dozen companies or less that anybody ought to pay any attention to. So the, the industry has been decimated. Uh, and right now, as far as consolidation is concerned, look, let's, let's, be, let's be really candid here. Um, we've become a very small fraternity. And one of the things that is not well understood is that, look, all of these companies, they can go to these conferences and they can say whatever they want to uh, an audience of 300 uh, attendees who all paid to be there to hear the experts talk about uranium or any other commodity, gold, silver, whatever the case might be. And those companies can get up there and say whatever they want in terms of we are going to produce this amount of product and we're going to do it at this low price, this world beating price, and we're going to do it in this short time frame and we're the company you should be invested in. You can say that to a bunch of retail investors. You can even get away with saying it to the to the analysts and to to the bankers. And and to a large extent, you can get away with saying it to the to the hedge funds because at the end of the day, they're not experts in uranium and they're not experts in nuclear fuel. But you can't say it to the rest of the industry. You can't say it to a guy like me. Somebody walks in my door and says, Hey, let's get married. I'm going to take a look at their projects and I'm going to say, mm, sorry, I, I mean, you know, what you say at the conferences and what you say to me are two different things. And I know what's real and I know what isn't. And the fact is, is that um, there are only a handful of companies and I'm going to say no more than three or four that have what I would consider to be real assets, real assets that I would consider consolidating with. And the fact is, is since I'm one of those, and I've demonstrated what a beast Lost Creek is over the last eight years, I mean, I'm getting 93% recovery, for goodness sake. It's hard for me to look at other companies and buy into the BS. You've heard me say this before. I, I've coined the term BS squared. I call it blue sky times the other BS. And I think that that is what sells out in the marketplace. So guys go out there and they tout their pounds in the ground. and those pounds in, in all likelihood will never see the light of day, not in your lifetime, not in my lifetime. But that's what gets sold out there in the marketplace, and, and, and that gets what, that's what gets touted out there. Now, how many of those companies can you legitimately uh, consolidate with? I think there are some acquisition opportunities. I think the merger opportunities are quite limited, but I do think that there are some acquisition opportunities in terms of projects uh, that are available, maybe some that are earlier stage and a few that are more advanced. So I do think that there are some acquisition opportunities uh, and we would hope to be engaged in that. And we think that we're in very good position to be engaged in that. But when it comes to consolidation or merger, we would be very selective. Um, our guys are pops in the field. We can't be fooled. So, we know who's legitimate, we know who's not, and um, for us, those options are very limited. So I don't want to, I don't want to mislead anybody into thinking that 
that we would be merge uh, that there would be a lot of merger candidates out there for us. There wouldn't be, but would there be acquisition uh, opportunities? Yes, there would be. Yeah, there's not a lot out there, and uh, from a development project standpoint globally, I would say there's probably less than maybe seven from a global standpoint yeah. that are actually worth actually taking a look at. Still a lot of complexities, but still worth taking a look at. Yeah, there's some, there's some good early stage guys out there. They really are. Some of the some of the big explorers. They've got real assets. I mean, they're, they're good, solid guys. Jeff, comments on the formal ESG push, and is there any work at the company level that you'd like to highlight in regards to specifically the community work component of ESG? Well, you know, you know what, for us, uh, you know, I, I, I got that question, in fact, just yesterday from a, uh, from a portfolio manager that I met with, and, and he said, what are you guys doing along those lines? And I, it's... Um, you know, this is one of those things where ESG is relatively new. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of new to the lexicon or, you know, the uh, of the industry uh, because nobody really talked about in, in environment, social, or governance uh, in the past. In in our industry, we haven't had a choice. We've had to live it. And the thing is, is that everything we do is subject to public scrutiny and public comment periods. We have no, we have zero emissions, so there's really no an, an environmental issues other than we are solution miners, and there is a certain amount of toxic um, waste, but it's very low percentage that gets disposed of deep underground in in deep disposal wells. But aside from that, uh, our interaction with the communities within which we work are very good. We're out in the middle of nowhere in the Great Divide Basin of Wyoming, and so. Um, there is nothing for many, many miles around. We don't have large um, uh, population centers anywhere near us. So um, in, in terms of, of governance, we're heavily regulated and we deal in a state that is very, very friendly and very, very environmentally conscious. So I think that um, we are going to do um, what we believe is expected of us at this point. And that is we will come out with some form of ESG uh, program for the company, and we will come out with a report on that, and, and we will report on it. It will be uh, a press release, and we'll have that out right now. We, we haven't had the time to put that together. We're working on the Q1 uh, financials right now, and those will be released at, at the, you know, that's next week. So we've had a lot of things going on, and uh, but we will come out with an, an ESG program. We will come out with an, an ESG report. But I would suggest to you that it's going to be pretty, I mean, it will be thorough, but it's it's not going to be very impactful because we've had to live it. And other industries have not. We've had to live it. There's just no getting around it in our industry. You guys here in later days with higher uranium price, I know that there's more initiatives that you guys will consider undertaking from a community yeah. standpoint. Probably in Wyoming, it's more towards uh, some environmental wildlife, but then also from a community standpoint, initiatives at the local community level, probably education, jobs, and these types of things uh, in Wyoming for those rural communities that may not have a lot of economic subsistence. The other point that you know ESG being formalized now, 
But the fact of the matter is, is things like CSR and prior reiterations of ESG have always been practiced by good management teams going back decades, whether you're in copper, gold, uranium, whatever it may be. And then there's, of course, the other side of that where people have, you know, essentially not practiced that and probably haven't been that successful in the past as well. And so that's our general view on it. I think it's just becoming a formalized matter where there's people who ask the question, what are you doing on ESG? And the fact of the matter is, is that person who's asking the question doesn't even know what ESG really means on the ground as far as blood, sweat, tears. And I had a person, I won't mention names, but I had a person who uh, mentioned the same thing I just said, where people ask about ESG, they're from some fund. The fact is they've never practiced ESG themselves or even know what it really means. They're just asking the question to check a few boxes. Yeah. And, and, and not only that, but we're scrutinizing. You talk about each one of those levels. You really break it down into what each one of those component parts are. We're subject to annual scrutiny on each one of those levels. And so uh, there's no hide. We are an open book. We are incredibly transparent. And as I said, we have to live it. And we've had to live it from day one. So um, we're, you know, for us, uh, coming up with a, a report on ESG is simply stating uh, in um, what have now been, what is now the jargon of the day, we'll state it in those terms, but it's what we've been doing all along anyhow. And I yeah. think the days of any form of dirty mining, I mean, you know, let's face it, the, the Kazakhs can, can, can leach with sulfuric acid. They don't have to clean it up. They leave it in the ground to naturally attenuate over centuries. Uh, that kind of thing doesn't happen uh, in first or second world countries anymore. Uh, virtually every country is environmentally conscious. There are very few countries that can get away with that type of thing, and we certainly can't get away with it here in the United States and wouldn't want to. We, Our kids grow up here. We have to live here. We're, we're, we've always been socially and, and environmentally responsible, and we'll simply continue doing the things we've been doing. Well, looking forward to you guys continuing those efforts, and especially as cash flows start to come in and market conditions yeah. are amenable to uh, some additional work in the local communities. Jeff, looking out into later stages of this cycle, do you see UR Energy as a takeover, or is your plan to continue building out this company to sustain it through multiple cycles? What is the plan? What is your time frame personally, and what is your personal exit? First of all, as a as a publicly traded company, I mean, there's uh, you know, look, all's fair and kind of love and war in publicly traded companies, right? If somebody wants to make a big enough uh, premium offer for our company, that's nothing that I'm going to determine. That that's up to the shareholders. But with respect to what our intentions are for the company, that is to continue to build out, to expand our footprint, and to do what we always set out to do. Remember that when we started this company. Our objective was to be a low-cost provider of yellow cake to the domestic utilities as the largest consumers in the world. We have, in our view, done absolutely everything we ever said we would do as a company. We're very, very proud of that. And so we'll continue to expand the footprint. We'll continue to build out the company. We believe that we are the lowest cost producers outside of Kazakhstan. And quite candidly, if they weren't producing in Tenge, which is their national currency in Kazakhstan that has been devalued by 90, almost 95% over the last six years, and then selling in euros, pounds, and dollars. Well, I would suggest to you that anybody can look like an economic marvel if they're producing in tenge or rubles and selling in those highly appreciated currencies. 
but no, we feel that this is there's a real turn in the works here. With and and keep something else in mind, when the Russians are building out all these reactors, they're also promising to fuel them for the entire life of these reactors. They're expected to become a net importer by 2025. So we want to continue to be exactly who we are. We're going to build our footprint. We're going to be able to double those permitted uh, uh, ability to uh, uh, permit uh, and uh, produce up to now 4 million pounds a year, up from two. This is something that's coming. We So we will expand our footprint. And we think through acquisition, we'll be able to, to do that. And one other thing that I would emphasize is that we grew uh, Lost Creek from 6 million pounds in 2011 to 21 plus million pounds in 2016. You give me $10 million that I have the freedom to spend on exploration. This is a forward-looking statement. I believe we can double the size of Lost Creek from there. We think that it's a very, very scalable project. So uh, we think we're in the perfect position at the right time. Our cost structure is better than any of our competitors. And so we really love the position that we're in, and we think that we're in great position to make acquisition. And someday, if somebody wants to make a really, really big premium offer for our company, and I would stress to the rest of the community, that's what it'll take, then so be it. Uh, I don't get to control those things, and it just means I retire a little earlier. Finishing up here. Potential investors who are on the sidelines listening to the conversation, market cap of the company stands about $210 million U.S. What would you say to them at this stage and at current price levels? Why should they consider UR Energy now? Well, first of all, we have not had the big move that others have. In fact, we have been somewhat underperforming some of the other players in the sector. And one of the primary reasons for that is that we have not been on a major industry index. And, um, you know, the Russell reset is coming. I think that this year we're in prime position to perhaps get on the Russell. We're very hopeful that we will. We've been on three times before. Uh, and, um, you know, then then you've got all those 130, 140 index funds that have to own you. I think that there would be a big push there. I think that there's uh, the potential that the utilities will be in the market in a big way, a much bigger way in the second half of this year. And we've been able to really contain dilution. If you compare side by side our level of dilution with those of that of our peers over the last 10 years, ours has been a fraction of what our peers have been. So we've been very mindful of that. We are very stingy with a share of stock. Uh, I'll always be, I'm a pit bull when it comes to issuing shares. And so we're we're not only the lowest cost producer out there in certainly in North America, but we believe outside of Kazakhstan. So we're the low cost producer. We've got cash. We've got inventory. We're going to be primary players in the government's push for the to, to set up the nuclear reserve. And now when the utilities go out there, look, here's one thing that I would emphasize also. I sometimes it bothers me because producers tend to look at these utilities like they don't understand what they're doing and they think they can kind of smoke things by them. These guys are smart guys. When it comes to filling out their book in terms of their deliveries, they knew who they can rely on. There's only a handful of us and that they know that they can rely on for deliveries will be front and center and we'll get those contracts because We've been delivering to those utilities for the last eight years, and when the and when the next contracting cycle comes, 
will be firmly in, in, engrossed in it. So and in, enmeshed in it. So we're, I think that our position is is an advantageous one. I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade places with anybody. And I think that uh, we'll get. Uh, I think that we'll catch up. We'll close the gap with some of the other guys. And uh, my feeling is is that we're in great position to do that. I, I genuinely think we're undervalued at this point in time. And so, uh, to your listeners, I would say uh, I think that we've got the best. Uh, we're in the best position to get the highest percentage gains moving forward over the next 12 months, 24 months. As we like to say, the horses in this sector are still kicking around in the stall. The gates haven't opened, and the race really hasn't even begun. So uh, don't be too concerned about the uh, initial performances here. It's not representative, in my view. Agreed. Best way for investors to reach out to the company? On our website, of course, and uh, the PowerPoint's on there, all the contact information. But uh, you can reach out uh, you know, to me directly, and that's just... Uh, Jeff.clenda at ur-energy.com. Uh, my uh, cell phone is on the website. Uh, I love to talk shop. So I field questions from shareholders and would-be shareholders every week. Always happy to take those calls. So I, I pride myself on being very, very accessible. So feel free to contact me. Happy to talk to anybody. Jeff, pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for coming back to update and uh, let's do it again soon. You got it, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.